Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where there's no offseason, and we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this on the 8th day of August 2017 in the Sully Baseball studio in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager Bob Melvin, and just a line drive from Sunken Diamond, the baseball home of the Stanford Cardinal. Hey, um, a bunch of things I got to cover in this. Uh, let's just talk about one quick thing, which is uh, an absolutely surreal thing that has occurred over the last, well, the last couple of weeks. Um, at the trade deadline, it really, really looked like the New York Yankees became one of the big winners of the trade deadline. It pains me to say this, but they they addressed their problems, and the team seemed to be playing at a, at a pretty high level. And uh, you know, acquiring Frazier, acquiring Robertson, acquiring Garcia, acquiring Gray, while none of them were the big gigantic splash, I think they were all good, solid moves. And I took one step back. The Yankees were like a game or so ahead of the Red Sox at the time. I did not think the Red Sox addressed their major need, which was a starting pitcher or another big bat in their lineup. And I kind of shrugged. I said, well, these two teams are going to go in opposite directions now. The Yankees are clearly better than the Red Sox now. And what's happened? The Red Sox are up by three games, and Eduardo Nunez has become the big slugger that we were hoping he'd become. And I just find it, it it's, it's absolutely surreal when the team started hitting and taking off just when I thought, man, they are just not in good shape. But that's not the strangest thing. I'm going to rehash something that uh, I've been talking about, and, and if I repeat myself, forgive me. But at this moment, as I'm recording this, I'm recording this in the afternoon of the 8th of August, and the Baltimore Orioles currently are dead even. They are, they are 56 and 56. We're almost in mid-August, and they're 56 and 56. That is the definition of mediocrity. And I was heavily critical of the Baltimore Orioles in the trade deadline, ESPN, and all the people I listen to are completely like, what are the Orioles doing? They should be trading Britain. They should be trading Manny Machado. They are not a very good team. They're a mediocre team. And they do not have a very deep farm system. And they have very valuable trade chips. And because of all this, they should be taking advantage of a gigantic seller's market and get two or three prospects for each of them and kickstart the rebuilding process. Because we've seen that it helps to have a year where you trade everything that's not nailed down and build, do an actual rebuild. Don't do a half-assed thing. If you're going to rebuild, rebuild. And we've seen how quickly the Astros turn things around. We've seen how quickly the Milwaukee Brewers have turned things around. And it's going to be before you know it that the White Sox are going to be a legitimate contender. You've seen that this model of, you know what, let's not be precious. It's better to have one or two bad years and rebuild and be very good than be mediocre for long stretches of time. And the Orioles didn't do that. A lot of people criticized them. And 
you could point to and say, like, yeah, now look at there. Here we are almost in mid-August, and they're the definition of mediocrity. But hold the phones. Do you know what's also the definition of mediocrity? The American League. Because being a 500 team, as I'm recording this, means you are a game and a half out of a wild card spot. Right now, the wild card would be, they'd have to do a one-game playoff between Tampa Bay and Kansas City, and the winner of that would play the Yankees. And as I'm recording this, the Mariners are behind that scrum of the Royals and the Rays, and the Orioles are a game and a half behind them. The Minnesota Twins are two games under 500 and are within striking distance of a playoff spot. In other words, as I'm sitting here, if the Orioles have a good month, and we're seeing Manny Machado is heating up, and any team can have a good month, and any team can have a bad month. Every team I just listed, the Yankees, the Royals, Tampa Bay, Seattle, none of those are the big red machine of the 70s. None of those are, you know, can't miss teams. And hell, the Red Sox and the Indians have shown their, you know, fallibility. Each of them are up by three games in the division. And I think the Red Sox will wind up winning the division. I think the Indians will wind up winning their division. But neither one of them are infallible. And if one or two of those teams, I mean, we're seeing their injuries going on to the Mariners. The Royals and the Rays have been anyone's guess most of this year. And the Yankees are an extraordinarily streaky team. They can sometimes look like they're going to rattle off 10 wins in a row and look invincible. And there's sometimes it looks like all the batters are looking at the bat going, what is this piece of wood and why am I holding it? It doesn't take much of imagination to say, in a month and a half, can Baltimore play three games better than the Royals, Rays, and Yankees? And the answer is, of course, yes. It's possible. Is it probable? I don't know. But there's a real possibility that all of us were kicking and screaming for the Baltimore Orioles to go into a full rebuild mode, and they could wind up being a playoff team this year. I mean, the, the scenario that has a team that we were begging to rebuild to make the playoffs is not outlandish. When you're only a game and a half out, a game or two back in the loss column with a month or so to play, and the teams you're chasing are incredibly flawed, yeah, yeah, there's a real scenario. And it's not crazy. A team that you can say is on pace to win 81 games, can look themselves in the mirror and say, yeah, we're a contender right now. We're legit. And the team they have to beat, if they win tonight, and by the time you're listening to this, the game's probably over, they have to play the Angels. And this is the reason why I look at the Angels and I look at the Detroit Tigers, those two teams, and you look at them and say, you, you know, again, this is a point I've already made, but this is just driving it home more than anything. That you have to make a change. The Tigers are, what, nine? They're, they're the second worst team in the American League. And again, the, the Oakland A's are only two games back in the loss column of Detroit. It won't take a, a big piece of imagination to see the A's leapfrog the Tigers and the Tigers be the worst team in the American League. And this is a team that has expensive 
star players on them. And I've said that the Tigers should probably do a rebuild. And if they can't trade Verlander, they can't trade Cabrera, they had to trade everyone else. And they did make a bunch of trades to their credit. But then you look at the Angels. Now the Angels, you could say, Sully, Sully, they're only three games back in the loss column. And they're actually they're three games back in total of the playoffs. So why aren't you going to pick the Angels? Because the Angels are a losing team. The Angels don't have the underachieving label that Baltimore had throughout this entire year. Remember, Baltimore was a playoff team in 2016 and in 2014 and in 2012. The Angels were a playoff team in 2014, and they haven't done piddly-poo since. In fact, this entire decade, they've made one playoff appearance, three and out against Kansas City in 2014. And the point I'm making is they have the best player on the planet in his prime, and they can't contend. If I were Major League Baseball, I would be enraged at the Angels right now. Enraged that they have who should be their marquee star. He should be the person on every poster, lunchbox, and billboard. And they want to do it. He does a few endorsements here or there, but most people don't know who he is, and he is not going to participate in the postseason. And to think that they can't participate in the postseason while playing in a league, while being 500 on August 8th, you can say, yeah, we're in this, baby. We're in it to win it. We're on pace to lose as many as we win. And we can look at our fans and say, buckle up. We have our eyes on October. And every team I just mentioned in the American League, Boston's beatable. Trust me, I'm a Red Sox fan. I've watched them. They're beatable. Cleveland's beatable. Yes, Corey Kluber is an outstanding pitcher, and he'll probably win every game he pitches. But they're vulnerable. They are a vulnerable team. Houston, despite running away, they had, what, a 14-15 game lead at this point, and by far the best record. I, I don't look at them as a powerhouse. They don't have the pitching depth that terrify me. If you're a wild card team... And you can say, all right, can we survive a sale start against Boston, a Kluber start against the Indians? Can we win the other games? Can we match head-to-head with Houston's pitching, which doesn't seem that hard right now? The scenario that has the Yankees winning the pennant is not outlandish. The scenario that has Tampa Bay or Kansas City winning the pennant is not outlandish because the teams ahead of them aren't that much better. If Seattle or Baltimore becomes a playoff team, you could say, do you think they're going to win the pennant? It's a long shot, but it's not, an, it's not outlandish. It's not crazy. You know? I mean, like, for example, if Milwaukee winds up winning the Central, I would be stunned if they beat Washington or Los Angeles. Hell, the Rockies and the Diamondbacks are having wonderful seasons. They may each win 90 games, and I don't think they have a prayer against Los Angeles. But every team in the American League, do they have an even shot? No, I give Boston and Cleveland a little more of a shot because they have legit aces who are better than the other starting pitchers. But And I, and I do think Cleveland is going to win the pennant. But it's not a lock. 
Baltimore, if they are one of the two wildcard teams, they could say, yeah, we have a shot to win the pennant. Absolutely we do. This is eerily similar to the way the American League looked in 2014 when the Angels had the best record and they got swept right out of it. The A's were the best team for most of the year. They lost the wildcard game. And you wind up having the Royals, who didn't even win 90 games, be one swing away from winning the World Series. The American League is pretty much exactly what everyone wanted for all those years. It's mediocre. And you're trying to tell me, Angels, with your deep pockets and having the best player on the planet, you can't contend when a 500 season means you're in it to win it? This is insane. And you have a market which is, all right, we all know they're freaking Anaheim. But they have a better TV package than the L.A. Dodgers. Trust me, I'm a permanent resident of Southern California. More people have access to Angel games and Dodger games on television. That's another podcast that I think I've already done. Three of them. They have deep pockets. They have, a, they have good attendance. They have a great television package. And you have this, this center spot of a bingo card, which you have the best player on the planet playing center field. All you have to do is put a mediocre team around them. I don't 100% understand how wins above replacement work. I, I still don't. I may never completely understand it. You're all going to have to just deal with the fact that I may never 100% understand how war works in terms of calculating it. But if you're going to dig it, if you're going to like it, wins above replacement for right now, um, uh, uh, Trout is at 4.8. He's at 4.8, and you consider he's only played 68 games this year. You know, most years he seems to be 9 or 10. But let's even say 7. That means you put a mediocre team around him. Mediocre is exactly what we said in Baltimore. 7 more wins is what? An 88-win season. Boom. Is that how war works? Not completely sure. But that's, that's all you have to do. You're going to put a great team. Put a team that's eh, 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 eh. That's what you have to put around them. And you want, there, is some talent, there is some talent around them. You know, Andrelton Simmons is having a very good season for them. It's true. Pujols, you know, Pujols isn't. I'm sorry. He's, he's hitting home runs, but that's all he does. He, there's not much left of his, his production. But with all this, you have a pitching staff where everyone's ERA has a freaking area code on it and Bud Norris is your closer. I mean, what, their, their, their farm director, Mike LaCasa, their GM, Billy Epler, their scouting director, Matt Swanson, their general manager, Mike Sosha. I mean, I heard someone say, well, next year is Mike Sosha on the hot seat. Um, everyone I just mentioned should be on the hot seat right now. Right now, because they can't achieve mediocrity. In a league that's been mediocre for the last few years, there hasn't been the powerhouse in the American League. This is not a new story. You have seen for the last couple of years, the National League is top-heavy. There's a big honking, big winning team at the top. 
whether it was Cubs the year before, you had you know big winning seasons from the Cardinals, the Mets, and the the Dodgers a few years before. You know you had you know the Pirates were putting up terrific teams, the Giants put up some good teams recently, and you saw there's real haves and haves nots. Is that grammatically correct? No. And you saw some of the, the contenders fall off, like the Mets have fallen off, the Cardinals fell off, the Giants fell off, and the Brewers and Rockies and Diamondbacks picked up that mantle, but it's still the same. You've got really good teams and real crap teams in the National League. In the American League, you have everything's kind of bunched in the middle. And even the runaway team, the Astros, not a powerhouse. And it is really up to baseball to get, look the angels in the eye and say, hey, um, yeah, about you having the best player in this game, it would behoove you to have him, I don't know, show up in October more than being in a suit and tie being presented some award. Oh, here's the best player in the game. Oh, really? Is he playing? No, 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 no. He's in the stands because the team... A big revenue team cannot reach mediocrity with him in the lineup. I'm tired of having the conversation of Mike Trout being something along the lines of, well, you know, how valuable is he if his team sucks? He won the MVP last year, and that was the conversation. Well, how valuable is he that his team sucks? Well, if you look at his stats, you look at what he brings to the table, there's nothing the guy can't do except, I don't know, perhaps pitch. And at this point, I don't understand how they could do worse than having him throw a few innings. So, I mean, Mike Sosha has been there since they were the Anaheim Angels, since they moved from Anaheim to Los Angeles of Anaheim. Are they, do they even have the of Anaheim on there anymore? I don't know how it works anymore. And frankly, I don't care. This is the sixth full season of Mr. Trout in the Angels. He's 26 years old. He's got a bunch of great years ahead of him. And yet they're being squandered because they can't put mediocrity around him. Now, is it worth the Angels to spend a year trading everything that isn't nailed down, like I suggested the Orioles do? Or should they go out and sign some big free agents or something along those lines? Well, that hasn't worked in the past. And it's getting me to think, you know what? Maybe they need a new direction. Maybe start something new. Sosha has had a wonderful time as the manager of the Angels, but sometimes... You have to turn the page and do something new. If he had won in 2014, well, I might be singing a different tune. I might be saying he's a Hall of Fame manager. But do you know what? That was 2014. We've had 2015, 2016, and now 2017 since then. That's three years. Three years of wasting this supreme talent. They can't do this. They can't do this anymore. Might be time to change it and tell the next manager, hey, do what we need from you? Mediocrity is what we need from you. I want to just pay a quick tribute um, 
three players passed away. Uh, Darren Dalton um, was a great player for the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, I'm going to kind of hold back on my effusiveness of Mr. Dalton a little bit uh, out of respect for the dead, but also um, I'm not 100%, you know, he's had, I, I haven't read enough of his domestic violence background, and I don't want to throw salt on the dead, but I also don't want to praise someone who might have done something that I personally find despicable. So what I'll just I'll just talk about him as a player, uh, and know that he was going through a brain tumor and a lot of terrible things were going on in his life and. He was a wonderful player when he played, and one of those players who Philadelphia fans will remember that 93 team, which had no business going to the World Series, and they went to the World Series, and he was a huge part of that. And he was those, one of these super respected players throughout his career. And he's gone. And my In Memoriam video is getting a little crowded right now. As Lee May, another person, controversy-free in his career, who you kind of you feel for players like Lee May because Lee May was a big, big slugger from the late 60s and the early 70s, and he was a guy who was part of the rebuilding of the Reds. Like when he came up, he was brought up along with Johnny Bench and Tony Perez, and he was playing with Pete Rose, and he was there when the Reds turned the corner and went from being an okay team, a mediocre team, to, you know, and he was an all-star 1969, some great years, and then was a huge power hitter when they finally got back to the World Series in 1970. It was a big piece of that. And in fact, he hit a dramatic home run when the Reds were like, what, five or six outs away from being swept from the World Series. He hit a go-ahead home run that at least gave the Reds one win in that series in 1970. And there was this, everyone could see that the Reds were building something extraordinary. They're building a really, really great team. But to Lee May's misfortune, he was traded in a trade that worked brilliantly for the Ast- for the uh, for the Reds. He was traded to the Astros in a deal that brought Cesar Geronimo and Joe Morgan and Jack Billingham and and Ed Armbrister and a bunch of players who were part of the world championship years and it was the right it was the right move to make for the reds obviously they got a two-time mvp and hall of famer in joe morgan and morgan was a huge part of turning the corner from being a you know a pennant winner to eventually a, a world champion but you got to feel for someone like lee may who was there for the lean years and misses out on the championship he wound up playing in the 79 world series but by then he was uh, he was with the Orioles at that point and was no longer the giant huge slugger that he was with the Astros. I kind of remembered him at the tail end of his career when he was a role player for Baltimore. But he also was a baseball lifer. He had a he had a grandson who now plays for the White Sox. His brother Carlos May was a star with the uh, White Sox and played in the World Series with the Yankees in the seventies. And he was a coach for many years. And just one of those. Baseball lifers had a great career and a great baseball life and part of a baseball family. And just when you when someone like that goes, 
You know they're never going to be in the Hall of Fame. You know they're never going to have their number retired, have a statue built for them. But they're worth a salute. They're worth a salute when they, when they go. Because they're the type of players that you just you, you root for, and they become the components of the teams that you love. And, and the big death, and the one that, that really was a roundhouse kick to me was Don Baylor. Don Baylor, by all accounts, an upstanding good man, um, was one of these players that you knew was going to be a manager because he just had that sort of respect and authority. He wound up managing for uh, nine or ten seasons with the, the Rockies and the, and the Cubs and became one of the few players in, in, in history to be the manager of the year and the MVP. People like Joe Torre, Frank Robinson, um, Ted Williams certainly was. And the first year, and I've talked about this ad nauseum, but the first year that I really followed baseball year in, year out was 1979. That was the first year I really followed the ins and outs of the days of the game of baseball. And Don Baylor was the American League MVP in 1979, which I, an award I wanted to go to Freddie Lynn, and it went to Don Baylor. Now, for you know, using the way that we look at stats today, there would be no way Don Baylor would have won the MVP because Fred Lynn probably would have won the MVP, or or maybe George Brett, or maybe uh, you know there were several other players. You know Bobby Gritch probably would have won the MVP over him if they did the stats today. But based on how they did the stats then, he scored the most runs, he drove in the most runs, he had a high batting average, he actually stole twenty two bases. He he got it then. That's how they were evaluating people then. Yes, Fred Lynn had the better overall season. I wanted to win the MVP. You know, sabermetric crowds would say it should have been Fred Lynn or maybe George Brett. I don't care. Don Baylor won it. And I mean, you know, my earliest memories were Don Baylor as a member of the Angels because that's where he won the MVP and that's where he played. He was he was he came up through the Orioles organization. He was part of that. Earl Weaver, Oriole way. And who knows, if he wasn't traded, he may have been one of those players who just played alongside of Eddie Murray and Ken Singleton and, and you know, Jim Palmer and all those great teams. He may have been associated with Baltimore like all that. But he got in the middle of what was a uh, controversy in the Oakland A's, and the A's traded away Reggie Jackson to the Orioles and Don Baylor was one of the players who came back to the A's, and he played one year with the A's before joining the Angels as a free agent. It's interesting, when you, you looked at the career of Reggie Jackson, you look at the career of Don Baylor, they almost perfectly mirrored each other for a period of time because Reggie played a whole bunch of years with the A's, one year with the Orioles in that trade, and then he went to the Yankees for a bunch of years. That same time, Baylor, a bunch of years with the Orioles, one year with the A's, then he went to the Angels. The Reggie left the Yankees to go to the Angels. Don Baylor left the Angels to go to the Yankees. Say for one year in 1982 where they were teammates, they almost always crossed paths to different places. And, and Reggie's final year, 87, he played for the A's. And he retired, and the next year, Don Baylor showed up. So once again, they kept missing each other. 
the the interesting thing I remember is a Red Sox, and when he joined the Red Sox in the trade involving Mike Eastler, it was an amazing moment as a Red Sox fan because he was someone who I've always just admired because he was the MVP and he just seemed like such a cool player and he just he had this aura he had this sense of authority about him, and when he joined the Red Sox. It was he, he kind of perfectly fit in because he'd get you know, right-handed power hitter and he and he had a good year with the Sox. But the tenor of the clubhouse seemed to change. And part of me was like, why don't you make him player manager? Because I was not a big fan of John McNamara at the time. And he hit big-time home runs and he provided a ton of power. And remember, he hit a two-run homer that set up the Dave Henderson home run. The the Dave Henderson home run was the second two-run homer of that inning. They scored four runs that inning. Baylor hit a two-run home run, and then Henderson hit the two-run homer. And that's what set up that amazing victory. For reasons I'll never understand, McNamara did not play Baylor at first against Bobby Ojeda in Game 6 of the 86 World Series. He played Buckner. Um, I'm not blaming Buckner for the, you know, the, it's not about the error, but Buckner had a bad series. He was not hitting well in that series and was clearly hurt. And it was a left-handed pitcher who had Buckner's number in Ojeda. So why not start Baylor? You can't use the, you needed Bill Buckner and therefore his glove argument. Um, but you know what? We all move on. I remember when there's a lot of times when, Players who were former Red Sox, especially members of the 86 Red Sox, went on to other teams to win with other teams. Part of me felt really good for them because I was like, that's the ring you should have got. You should, that's the ring you deserved. Even when Boggs and Clemens won their rings with the Yankees, part of me was like, well, you got the ring you earned. You should have got that ring earlier. And in 87... Uh, Don Baylor got traded at the, right, right around the end of August to the Twins. And I just moved here to Palo Alto from Boston. And I really, one of the reasons I rooted for the Twins in that postseason, I was rooting for the Giants mainly because I just moved out here and I thought it'd be fun to root for a team winning the World Series. But in the American League, I was rooting for the Twins. I liked Kirby Puckett. I didn't know about all the stuff, his domestic violence history at the time. But I loved Don Baylor, and Don Baylor was the part-time DH for the Twins. And in the World Series, he got the start against the left-hander John Tudor with the World Series on the line. The Cardinals were up 3-2 to two in that World Series. And Baylor hit a huge game-tying home run off of Tudor. Tudor was another former Red Sox. And I remember being so happy for Don Baylor when he hit that home run. He was thrilled. He was like he was one of my guys hit that home run. And, of course, immediately I went back. If he could hit that home run off a tutor, why didn't he start against Ojeda last year? Ah, never mind, never mind. And Baylor was a world champion, finally. He's a twin as a world champion. Couldn't win with the Orioles, couldn't win with the Angels, couldn't win with the Yankees, couldn't win with the Red Sox, but he won with the Twins. Okay, fine. He only played 20 games with the Twins. He hit one home run with the Twins. That was in the World Series. The next year he played with the A's, which was his final year in the majors. And that meant he was the first player in baseball history to play for three teams 
in three different teams in three consecutive years and played in the World Series each one of those years. He was in the 86 World Series with the Red Sox, 87 World Series with the Twins, 88 World Series with Oakland. That's since been matched by Eric Hinsky, of all players, another Red Sox DH. But anyway, he died. He died, and he was one of those players that you just respected. And you just, he had a sense of authority. He had a sense of, you got the sense that he knew not only how to play the game, but like he almost, he, he got the sense he understood right from wrong. Like beyond just on the field. He seemed like he was, he, he had an Atticus Finch quality to him. He had that, he, he had that TV dad feeling that, man, Baylor's saying the right thing now. Better listen to Baylor. And he passed away, there was a real sense of one of the players, one of the coolest players, one of the, the most respected players from my youth, and a player who, the, the 86 Red Sox were the first team that I ever rooted for that, that saw in October. And he was such a big part of it. When we lost Hindu the other, you know, a few years ago, and now losing Baylor, well, there's a sense that someone really special is gone. I hate to say it's like a friend because I never met the man. But he meant a lot to me from my first year of experiencing baseball as a day-to-day event with Don Baylor winning the MVP to my first taste of postseason play. I guess I just have to say, thank you, Mr. Baylor. And don't worry, you are going to get a prominent space in next year's In Memoriam video. Hey, uh, I haven't done a team that should have won in a while, and I'm starting to run out of them. And I'm going to have a little bit of time on my hands over the next few days, and I may wind up doing the relaunching of the podcast in a different format. So this should be an interesting time for your pal Sully. Um, let's do one. I'm going to I'm going to do one. In fact, I wasn't going to do this, but what the heck? I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it because of you and those of you listening. I'm going to do one more. Uh, team that should have won this because this one I've been having I'm not gonna lie to you I've been lying to you this whole time but I'm not gonna lie to you now I've been having trouble figuring out what Dodger team I was gonna have as the team that should have won and it really wasn't it was not coming easily to me now the Dodgers were, when I was a kid, one of the glamour franchises. And I decided I was, you know, I may go back and revisit the Red Sox team that should have won because I said 1978 for many reasons. And I was going to say 1977 or 19, 1978 for the Dodgers, but I'm having trouble pulling the trigger on that for this reason. I'm having trouble pulling the trigger on that because... I don't really remember them. I don't really remember the 77 or 78 Dodgers. And for me, a big part of this is a visceral reaction from myself. This was a team that should have won, and I understood and I witnessed all the things about this that they should have won about them. So I'm going to pick some later teams. Now, the thing about the Dodgers, of the many things about the Dodgers, 
is they were the one single lone franchise of the 1980s to win multiple World Series titles. If there was a team of the 80s, it would be the L.A. Dodgers. They won the 81 World Series, they won the 88 World Series. Plus, they were in the postseason in 83 and 85, and they narrowly missed an 80, and they narrowly missed an 82. So if there was a consistent team of the 80s, it would be the L.A. Dodgers, except when you look at the fact that the team that won in 81 and the team that won in 88 bore almost no resemblance to each other. There were a handful of players who played in both, but... I don't think a single starter, with the exception of Sosha, and most of the time Steve Yeager was the starting catch for the L.A. Dodgers. You know, if you look at the, the charismatic and the figures who, who gave us our great baseball memories of the 80s, sure, you have Valenzuela in 81, you have Kurt Gibson or Earl Hershiser in 88, but Valenzuela, who was on the 88 team, but he was injured, didn't play in that year's postseason. They're very different teams. Hell, the team in 1985 was very different from the team in 81 and it was very different from the team in 88. It's a tribute to Tommy Lasorda, who I would argue was probably the person of the decade in terms of baseball, that he was able to have the team really change, have three distinct teams win that decade. And... That brings me to my first nominee for the team that should have won. That was the 1985 Dodgers. Now, you think about the team that won in 81, that won basically because of the split season. Cincinnati Reds should have been the National League West champion, but they split them in two. Dodgers got into the postseason instead of the Reds. And in terms of history, it was nice for the Dodgers that the team that had Garvey, Lopes, Russell, say, that had Burt Hooten, that had Dusty Baker, that had Rick Monday, that had Reggie Smith, all those classic Dodger players finally got to win a World Series. And that was, you know, I have to say that was good for the long-term effect of the Dodgers that that group were able to put rings on their fingers. You could have said they should have got in 74, they should have got in 78. Uh, the Yankees were better than them in 77, but I was going to pick 78 as the team that should have won. But again, I don't really remember watching that. And that 81 team was able to make up for that. But the team that won in 1985. In 1985, the team was best remembered for the games they lost. Two home runs led up by Tom Niedenfuhr, who actually had a fine season as the closer, split the time with Ken Howell. But... The He let up the home run, the walk-off home run to Ozzie Smith, and then the three-run home run to Jack Clark in games five and six of the National League Championship Series. And the Cardinals went on to win the pennant, and they should have won the World Series, but a couple of blown calls and everything like that. They're remembered for that. That's what, that's what this team was remembered for. Now, the team itself was a 95-win team. They were a very good team, and they won the division by five-and-a-half games over the Cincinnati Reds. Now, St. Louis was on a 101-win team, so on paper, you know, on paper, they were the third-best team in baseball because the Mets won 98 games that year as well. But the Dodgers that year were kind of in a sort of a, a 
neutral zone. If I said that that 81 team and that 88 team were quite different, well, this team was kind of smack dab in the middle. They still had some players left over from the 1981 team. You still had Jerry Royce was still on that team. You still had Fernando Valenzuela was still on that team. Uh, Steve Howe was on that team but didn't pitch all that much. Um, you still had, as I said, Socia, they had Pedro Guerrero. Bill Russell was a part-time player on that team. It was an interesting club that they had. But they also had some other faces, some newer faces. Steve Sachs was an everyday player, and he would be the starter of the uh, 1988 team. Ken Landro was now the full-time starter, and Mike Marshall was the starter in right field. To be fair, Landro was on the 81 team. You had Mariano Duncan was the everyday shortstop. You had young Greg Brock. And Greg Brock was brought in to essentially be the replacement for Steve Garvey. You had Valenzuela was still there. The rise of Hershiser. Welch was still an excellent pitcher there. And you had a combination of Howell and Niedenfuhr and Diaz on that team. But the, the, the character of this team had a lot fewer of the tried-and-true veterans from the 81 team and didn't have the patchwork of young players and retreads that 88 had. And you had a couple other players like, I mean, you had, uh, um, um, I'm sorry, you had uh, uh, Bill Madlock was on that team and actually hit very well in a short period of time. He had a tr made a tremendous impression on the team uh, in, his short, in, in his short stint that he had with the club. You had a couple other veterans like, you know, you had Candy Maldonado was on that team. You had Enos Cabell on that team. And the, one of the reasons I keep going back to this team was if that Dodger team had won, and you would have had 81, 85, and 88, as your Dodger championships of that decade. And each team had a completely different identity to them and a different, totally different feel. Then that just would have cemented Tom Lasorda, first of all, would have made them definitely the team of the decade, but would have cemented Tom Lasorda as truly one of our great managers of all time that he was able to, rebuild the team on the fly, and no matter who they gave him, he was going to win with. Now, I believe that Lasorda belongs in the Hall of Fame, and I think he belongs in a short list of the great uh, managers of all time because of that and because of what he's been able to do. I just think that 85 team would have just made it so strange because on paper would have looked like a dynasty, and yet in any sort of evaluation of the team, would have made it look like, oh man, he just, it's totally different teams. With that in mind, the team in 1991, because Lasorda and the Dodgers never won a pennant in the 90s. Now, the team in 1991 uh, was a weird patchwork of superstars acquired from other teams, like Daryl Strawberry, like Eddie Murray, stars like Brett Butler were on that club. You still had Hershiser hanging around. You had Ramon Martinez making his grand debut with the team. And, you know, slapping together veterans like Bobby Ojeda and Mike Morgan and some players left over from the 88 championship like Belcher, like, as I said, Hershiser, like Jay Howell. And you had a couple other veterans, like, you know, the veterans are like, wait, 
John Candelaria was a Dodger? Wait, uh, you know, Roger McDowell was a Dodger? You know, it would have just been, uh, it would have been a, first of all, it, there was a bunch of players from the 86 Mets on there, so it would have been like an 86 Met reunion. And you had a great year from Brett Butler on that team. But again, would have been a totally different feel with a Lasorda team winning a title. And to win with a totally different cast of characters, only three years removed from his 88 team. Again, those are the types of teams that I would feel completely encapsules what made Lasorda great as a manager. Now, this was a team that had a big lead in August and then were, you know, were in first place by themselves on October 1st. But then they lost a bunch of games, and they lost the division on the final day of the season to Atlanta. Why Atlanta was in the West, I have no idea. That's a nominee I have there. I'll tell you one other nominee I have is 1995, the strike year. It was Lasorda's last full season. And it was also, again, four years removed from that 91 team, the Dodgers were almost unrecognizable. This was now a team of Piazza, Caros. Mondesi, Hideo Nomo. They were a new young team and virtually nobody left over. Forget the 88 squad. There was virtually nobody left over from (laughs) 1991, save for Brett Butler. And you took a look at this team and you would be able to say, here's a Dodger team with young players. You have that core of young players. As I said, Carlos Piazza, Mondesi. You would have had Hideo Nomo be the big you know, star, then opened up Japan and was would have been, eventually we would have found out it was Lasorda's final year. And if he had bookended his career with penance in 77 and 95 and constantly remaking the Dodgers into champions, no matter what the rotation of players he had, would have been, would have been amazing and, and, and really would have, given the Dodgers a much-needed championship and identity in those mid-years in the 90s. If, the, if they had won the World Series with Mike Piazza, would they have ever have traded him? Would he have ever wound up with the Mets? I doubt it. I truly doubt it. He would have been a Hall of Famer as a Dodger. He would have been one of the great Dodger figures in baseball history. And that's one reason I'm leaning a little towards 1995, but that's not where I'm going to go. There are a couple other potential ones. One was 2008. Mainly, now, the 2008 team actually wasn't that great a team. They only were 84 and 78. They wound up upsetting the Cubs in the division series and getting to the fifth game of the world's, of the league championship series against Philadelphia. Um, I was in L.A. at the time, and I was so I was a big Manny Ramirez fan from his days with the Red Sox. And the idea of him coming over there and carrying him to the World Series and having Nomar Garcia-Para there for the ride uh, and Derek Lowe there for the ride, it would have been just a lot of former Red Sox and that would have been, I think, a hell of a lot of fun. And also would have been, you know, Joe Torre winning the World Series in L.A. while the Yankees failed to make the postseason. As a Yankee hater, that would have been a little too much to turn away from. But I'm not going to nominate that. In fact, that's not the one I'm going to go with. I really, really almost picked 85. That almost was the one I picked, and I almost picked 95 for the same reason. 
But the team that I'm really going to point to right now is 2015. The 2015 Dodgers, not the best team in the National League. That would have been the Cardinals. You had the Pirates and you had the, the Cubs there as well. You had the Mets wound up beating them in that five-game series. In a five-game series where the Mets beat both Zach Grinke and Clayton Kershaw. They had Grinke on the mound and a lead. I believe they had a lead. In actually, let me let me go to baseballreference.com and see where it's on this planet Earth. I'll go up here. Did the Dodgers have a lead in that game? Yes, they did. They were up two to one with Grinky on the mound, and then it turned into the David Wright, sh- uh, the Daniel Murphy show, and then next thing you know, the Mets win that game. They wind up sweeping the Cubs and going to the World Series. But that Dodger team, when you look at them, all the things that would have been great with that Dodger team. First of all, Clayton Kershaw is one of the great stars in Dodger history. He should be considered to be one of the great elite legends in Dodger history. And he probably would be if he hadn't lost big games in the postseason in 2013, 2014, 2015, and 2016. That's what's hanging over his head now. And who knows? The Dodgers could could very well win it all this year. And what I'm about to say about 2015 could be wiped out. But there are other factors in 2015. First of all, you had the combo of Zach Greinke and Clayton Kershaw. I loved that one-two punch. Zach Greinke is one of my favorite players in baseball because that guy doesn't give a damn. He doesn't care what you think. He doesn't care if you like him. He doesn't care. I like that about Zach Greinke. The fact that Clayton Kershaw struck out 301 batters and had a 2.13 ERA over 233 in two-thirds innings and was the number two starter on that team was pretty damn amazing. There were also other elements of that team that I thought were pretty incredible. I think the fact that they had, you know, you you had a solid year from, you know, uh, Jock Peterson. You had Adrian Gonzalez, who's had a big, long... Distinguished career as a slugger, and he was still an elite slugger at that point. And you still had some of the other, you know, some other players who were still there, whether it was uh, Andre Ethier, you know, Puig was still there, Howie Kendrick was still there, you had Jimmy Rollins hanging on there, and you had Don Mattingly, who has yet to go to a World Series in any way, shape, or form as a player, coach, or manager after all those years in New York. And if he would have won the World Series that year, just the sense of adulation of Don Mattingly, a guy who I've been saying, like Don Baylor, is someone who's just universally respected and played for a long time and just wonderful reputation. And it was theirs for the asking. The Dodgers, if they had gone on and be able to throw Grinky and Kershaw, Grinky and Kershaw, and be able to win, and be able to win with Don Baylor, it's the skipper, and be able to win and be able to take the city of Los Angeles and to have a Manningly championship, and Kershaw to be able to have this thing lifted from him that he still has hanging over him, this postseason chokerama that he has. Fair or not, you can't run from your identity. You know, 
I picked those other teams because I would have thought a third championship for Lasorda with a completely different identity would have just been the icing on the cake. But instead, I got to look at the people who need the freaking cake. Kershaw needs the cake. Mattingly needs the cake. I mean, they, they, they're getting Twinkies right now. Division titles are Twinkies. Those other years I mentioned, 85, 95, the years with Kershaw, with um, 08, 09, all those years are not going to be years that Dodger fans hold close to their bosom because they didn't win it. Oh, they'll be nice. Oh, that was a fun team. That was a fun team. But the Dodger legacy of those champions that they had over the years, they've all been world champions. Whether you're talking Duke Snyder, Pee Wee Reese, and Jackie Robinson, or you're talking about Fernando, or Steve Garvey, or Oral Hershiser, or Kirk Gibson. It's what Piazza's legacy has gone on, and the fact that he was traded away in his best years with the Mets because of stupidity amongst Dodger ownership. But now you've been given, like I said with Trout, you have the two most exciting players in baseball are Clayton Kershaw and Mike Trout. And Kershaw's hurt right now. Now, he's probably going to be well for the postseason. Maybe that's what he needs to do. Maybe he needs to go to the mountain and, and consult with the clouds and figure out what to do in October. But if the 2015 Dodgers had won the World Series, we wouldn't be talking about this right now. We wouldn't. And so that is my pick for the team that should have won. The 2015 Los Angeles Dodgers would have changed the destiny of many, many figures in baseball. And it would have been a lot of fun. So I only got a few more of those left, and we're going to rebrand the podcast. And uh, tonight, I think we're going to have some dinner. So go to SullyBaseball.com, like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. This has been Sully Baseball, recording on the eighth day of August 2017. Talking, paying the tribute to Don Baylor, wanting to scrub things up in California with the Angels, and remembering those frustrating years for the Dodgers. Hell, I haven't stopped talking, and it's been 55 minutes. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. You can call me Sullivan.